Let's open the scriptures to the book of Samuel, Old Testament book, book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel, chapter 15, in your pew Bible, page 303, 303. I've chosen this reading in connection with the third petition, so we need to pay attention how Saul, in this chapter, King Saul, how he interacts with the will of God. The word of the Lord then in 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So that's then what God wants Saul to do. And then the response. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 
I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So far the word of the Lord, confession. In response to the preaching, we'll sing Psalm 143, the stanzas 5 and 6. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we dealt with the second petition, Your Kingdom Come, I started by asking you a question along these lines. When was the last time you spent any significant amount in prayer asking the Lord for His kingdom to come? As in, when did you really concentrate on matters to do with our Father's kingdom? I put that question to you. And hopefully since that sermon, we've all given more thought and attention in our prayers to the Father's glory and to the Father's kingdom. That's what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. But as we come now to the third petition, your will be done. And if I were to ask you a similar question about this petition, how frequently do you ask that the will of God be done? 
I suspect your answer would be quite different. You might say to me, well, I mention that all the time. Your will be done. I hear mention of God's will quite frequently in prayers in the catechism classroom when the students pray, prayers of the office bearers. It usually comes after a particular request is made in prayer, say, for example, for someone's healing, maybe for someone's repentance, or maybe for the success of a particular endeavor that's underway. Then we often say something like, Father, grant this prayer if it is your will. Or maybe in wording closer to the Lord's Prayer, not our will, Lord, after a number of requests, not our will, but your will be done. So if we have work to do on petition number one and petition number two, when it comes to praying for the will of God to be done, it would seem we're doing just fine. But are we really beloved? What if I were to say to you that when we pray about God's will in that manner, it actually has nothing to do with the third petition? Don't get me wrong. It's still quite biblical to pray the way I was describing. And I'm convinced it's rooted in true faith and a humble heart. But the third petition is not about the secret will of God. It's not about whatever God might have planned for my life or not, but it's all about what God commands of your life and mine. And so I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme as a prayer, Father, create in me a desire to do your will alone. Create in me a desire to do your will alone. This, uh, this involves the need to break my will and for the Father to heal my will. When it comes to God's will, the Bible speaks about that in two different ways. Either, on the one hand, as God's plan for the future, which only God knows, or, on the other hand, as God's word for the present, which he has plainly told us about in the Bible. When we read in Scripture about God's overarching plan, we learn from the Bible that God has control over every detail of our lives, every detail of this world, in fact. God has a purpose in all that He does, and everything that happens in the universe, from, from little to big, it all fits into God's master plan. The prophet Isaiah writes about this very powerfully and very forthrightly in chapter 46 of his book. He speaks here about the hidden plan of God. And I'm quoting the Lord through Isaiah says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I do all that I please, what I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46. So, 
when we ask God in prayer to heal a loved one, or maybe to bring a loved one to repentance, and then add, not our will, but your will be done, we are referring to God's master plan, because we don't know what God's will is there. We don't know what His secret design is. We don't have access to that. We're not sure if it's God's will for that person to be healed or that person to repent. And because we don't want to presume upon the Lord and tell God what should be done, we want to, in deference to Him, leave it up to His wisdom, we add those words very submissively, your will be done. And again, it's good, it's humble, it's fitting, but is that what the Lord Jesus is speaking about in the third petition? Is He talking about God's secret plan? And the answer to that is no. We can rationalize this or figure this out by looking at the whole sentence of this third petition. In the context, it would not make sense to be talking about God's secret will. Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the Lord Jesus makes a distinction between what's going on in heaven and what's going on here on the earth. The Father's will, he says, it's already being done in heaven, and it's the model for how things should be done on the earth. So whatever Jesus means here by will, it's not currently being done on the earth, and we are meant to pray for that to change. Does it make any sense then to say that the sovereign will of God, that His plan is unfolding perfectly in heaven, but not on the earth? Is it really true that God's secret plan is somehow off the rails down here on the earth, that there's a bunch of things that have to be fixed up in the plan? Well, think of Isaiah's words. Those words are very clear. Everything that happens is already known by God in advance, and not just known intellectually, but planned out by the Lord in advance, before the creation of the world. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1. Whether it's the actions of angels or creatures, humans, devils, demons, good or bad, all of those actions, all of those events, they happen, they unfold in heaven and on earth because God wills it so. They unfold as God has planned it. So, it must be the case that the Lord Jesus in the prayer is talking about that other sense of God's will, which is simply to obey the Lord's commands, to do what our Father wants us to do. The Bible talks about obeying God's will or simply doing God's will in many places. Let me mention just a few. Psalm 40, I desire to do your will, O God. My, your law is within my heart. God's will is clearly laid out for us in, in the Bible, in the, the law of the Lord and elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 143, we'll sing that after the service. Teach me to do your will. Teach it to me, for you are my God. The Lord Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, including this petition about the Father's will being done. He taught that, you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Well, if you go through that sermon just a, a little bit later, a chapter later, chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, here it comes, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Almost the same wording as the Lord's Prayer. And that's really clear that he's talking about obedience, isn't it? So when you hear and read the third petition in its context and in light of all of Scripture, it's clearly talking about obedience to God's revealed will. Father, create in me a desire to do your will and your will alone. That's what we're praying. Notice how the Catechism stresses this. In its answer, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without murmuring obey your will for it alone is good. You can't obey a secret will, can you? But you can obey a law that's been told you, a law that's been taught, and that's what Christ is focusing on. And if you think about the the logic of the Lord's Prayer, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? When you pray that first petition, that your Father's name be hallowed, you're praying that His name may be praised by every creature everywhere. And how precisely is that going to come about? Well, the second petition helps us when your Father's kingship is recognized and honored, then God's name is praised. But how, in practical terms, is God's kingship honored? How do you honor a king? You honor the king by obeying the king's commands. Third petition. When those commandments of the king are embraced and obeyed lovingly and swiftly with full respect from the heart, just like the angels in heaven do, you see, that's the model, then the Lord's name is praised. And now the Catechism is instructing us, in order for us to do that, we have to recognize something very important about ourselves. We have to recognize that our will is faulty. Our will is, by nature, sinful. It is not good. So we have to learn, we confess, to deny our own will. And how easy do we find that, beloved? How many times in the last week did you consciously deny your own will? Where you had something that you wanted to do, you really wanted to do something, but then you, you paused and you stopped to compare your will, what you wanted, with God's will, what He says in the Bible, and you, you realized, uh, my will does not line up, does not agree with God's will, so I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to say no to my will. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to submit to my king, my father, and I'm going to do his will. How many of us did that last week? Do we even think in these terms on a regular basis that my will is inherently bad and I have to be on guard against it? The world around us tells us the exact opposite, doesn't it? It trumpets that 
your will and mine is good, that our wills are always right and to be followed. Whatever you believe, that's your truth. Go for it, man. Whatever you want for yourself, hey, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, it's good, it's right, it's right for you, just do it. According to unbelievers, your desires are perfectly fine, so go ahead and follow your heart. And we like that. That's a natural, sinful inclination that every human has since the fall into sin. Who wants to deny our own desires? That's very, very counterintuitive. And yet, if we're going to be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to be the real deal Christians, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that's exactly what we need to do. Listen to Scripture on this point. To the Holy Spirit, describe the condition of your heart and mine. Of every human heart, Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So one of the most damning verses in Scripture comes early in the history of mankind, Genesis 6. Every human, by nature, every day, has evil thoughts continuously. It, this is another way of talking about total depravity. We are corrupt in all of our being. Jeremiah the prophet says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Your, my heart is deceitful. Do you believe that about your heart, that your heart can deceive you? It's so deceitful that we can fool ourselves, can't we? Fool ourselves into thinking that our actions are okie-dokie fine, that the Lord is pleased with us. We tell ourselves that we've prayed about it. We tell ourselves we have a, a sense of peace about it, that we're good with the Lord. Don't worry about me. But have we carefully, thoroughly examined the will of God and lined up or compared our action to what God actually says? How easy it is to trick ourselves into thinking we have done so when we have not. That's exactly what happened to King Saul, 1 Samuel 15. He tricked himself. His heart deceived him. He heard God's commandment. He knew God's will. But he had his own desires. He had his own will, and he let himself be guided by that will. He convinced himself that God was happy with what he had done. Did you notice that? How, how Saul was convinced and he's, he's surprised when Samuel calls him on the carpet for not completely doing what the Lord had commanded? When Samuel finally catches up to Saul, then Saul greets him, verse 13, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord, says Saul. He really thinks that. That's self-deceit. I have obeyed the Lord's will. Saul, you're fooling yourself, man. And when Samuel points out that he hears the bleeding of the sheep and the other cattle, whereas God had destroyed them, commanded all of them to be destroyed, then Saul 
dares to speak back and rationalize what he has done. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. And the rest have been devoted to destruction. You, you see how that gets twisted? And with a little pious sugar on the top, we saved these, these here so that we could sacrifice. Isn't that a good thing, Samuel? Sounds noble. We are very expert at couching our actions in Christian sauce, making it look and sound so godly and righteous, and yet it is nothing more, says God to Samuel, than open rebellion against the will of God. Saul followed his own will, not the Lord's. And that's why the Lord Jesus teaches us in this third petition to actively deny our own will. It's not only here that he taught this principle. He said this elsewhere, for example, in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Every Christian has to deny him or herself. One of the hardest things you can do. To deny yourself simply means to say no to your wishes, your desires, and to commit yourself to obeying Christ's wishes, Christ's desires as revealed in Scripture. That's incredibly difficult. I'm so used to giving in to my desires. I'm not used to checking Scripture before I do what I want to do. I'm so comfortable with doing what I want to do. I do it all the time. I do it without thinking. And if I ask myself, does it agree with the Word of God, I just think it does. It has to. So when there are things, opportunities, temptations coming around the corner, for example, when there are things to, to eat that I love, which are not healthy for me, which I know are not good for my body, I just give in and eat and ignore God's command to be a good steward of my body. When conversation turns towards someone I don't particularly like, I find it easy to pile on with criticism and gossip and never think how it is Christ's will to not gossip, how it is Christ's will not to put my neighbor down, but instead to build my neighbor up. When the Lord calls me to submit to my parents or to my elders or to my teachers, then it's natural for me not to do that, to go behind their backs, to do their own, my own thing, to give no thought to how God wants me to listen to them and to obey their instruction. Brothers and sisters, we, we have to realize that disobeying God comes to us as easily as breathing. We follow our own will as unthinkingly as blinking. That's why we need to wake up and cry out this third petition in humbleness of heart, Father, break my will. Break it, for it is sinful. So for every one time, brothers and sisters, that you 
in your prayers, submit your requests to God's secret will. Every one time you do that, submit your heart ten times to the Lord's revealed will, to His Word, and pray something like, Father, Your commandments are good. Your law is holy, but my will is the opposite. It's corrupt. It's sinful. Take my heart and, and mold it. Take my mind and transform it. Take my will and conform it to your will, Father. Oh, Lord, heal my will. For that has to follow after our will is broken. We have to have our will broken, kind of like a like a wild horse. The cowboys will tell you, a horse trainer will tell you that wild horses need to be broken in before they can be of any use to the owner. Wild horses, they're used to running free and doing their own thing. They're used to being their own master. They're used to following their own will. And the trainer's job, job is to break that will and show them who's the boss. Who's the master tr in, in truth? Then the horse can be controlled. Then the horse can be ridden. Then the horse can serve a good purpose. Well, you and me, we're, we're like that wild horse. And God is our trainer. He lays out for us in His Word the way He wants us to live. And He calls us to follow His will. He calls us to lay down all the obstacles, lay down our pride, lay down our ego, lay down our desire to be our own masters, and instead to acknowledge Him as our only master. And He does all of this for our good, and He introduces us to the good life. Our basic instinct, however, doesn't accept that. Like the wild horse fights the halter when the trainer throws it on him for the first time and, and reacts against the bit and tries to buck off the rider, so our natural will resists God's law and wants to throw off the reins of the master. And yet that does not give us true freedom. We were created to live beneath God's will, to obey God's will, to be happy and content serving our Creator. That is the place of happiness for every human being. And so long as we buck against that, we will never be at peace. We will never know joy. We will never be useful in God's service. We will never enjoy the fullness of life we were meant to enjoy. You know, among the wild horses that need to be broken, you have ones that are easier to tame than others. Some learn quickly and go quietly, while others learn slowly and they resist with all their might and they, they resist for a long time. So, what kind of horse are you, beloved? Some horses have to have more force applied in order to bring them in line, and that can hurt. Do you realize that resisting God's 
teaching, resisting our master's instruction, only brings ourselves pain, trouble. As Christians, we need to pray that God will heal our will and teach us his ways and give us a submissive spirit. Father, create in me a new heart that has a desire to obey your will. That's why we sang Psalm 119. The whole psalm is actually a prayer for the Lord to tame the believer's will. Listen to stanza 25. We sang this. Instruct me, Lord, for it is you alone who are of all true knowledge the beginning. So he's confessing, you are the only true, true fount of knowledge, not me, you, Lord. He continues, I went astray, but as I wandered on, you humbled me, and now I keep from sinning. Isn't that something? You humbled me. You, Lord, you humbled me. You ever experienced something like that where you went astray and the Lord taught you a lesson? That God made things hard for you to wake you up to some sin so that you never want to go down that road again. That's a good thing, right? Hard in the moment, but good in the long run. And later the psalmist will say it plainly, how good it is, or how good it was for me to suffer pain, so that in all your statutes you might school me. Starting to sound like James. Looking back, the man acknowledges that the pain suffered, you could say in the words of James, the trial experienced was for his benefit. It was a blessing in disguise. And then the poet adds this striking line, your ordinances are my greatest gain, for gold and silver can no longer fool me. That really sounds like James. Temptation to riches can no longer fool me. I'm not being taken in by the, all the glitter and shine of, of the money and the wealth. Isn't that an incredible gain when that happens to a person? As we saw this morning, what a, a great blessing it is to see riches for what they really are, to look past them to what is truly valuable in this world, a closer and closer relationship with the Lord Jesus. The psalmist, through his trials, can say, gold and silver are not a threat to me anymore. They no longer fool me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if other temptations if we could say that about other temptations, like temptation to gossip can no longer fool me. I know what it is. I know how, how useless it is, how destructive it is. I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to gossip anymore. It no longer draws me in. Or the temptation to disobey human authorities, it no longer fools me. I'm going to obey so long as those authorities are obeying the Lord. Or temptation to overeat. 
or temptation to look at pornography. Wouldn't it be amazing to get to the point where these daily provocations no longer have a hold on me, no longer have a grip or overpower me or subdue me? But having been trained by my Heavenly Father to do His will, I learn in each case to deny my own will. Part of me wants to do it, but I'm not going to. I deny my own will, and I live in peace with my God and with my neighbor. Brothers and sisters, real blessings, true goodness, are found not in being a wild horse running away from God and doing our own thing. Blessing is found in surrendering our sinful will to be broken by God and to be healed by God. As David says in Psalm 143, Teach me your way and guide my learning. I offer all my heart. I offer all my heart. That's the third petition. That's the sweet spot for all our lives. Amen.